You're listening to Climate Rising, an official podcast of Harvard Business School. 11 years ago for a Wall Street bank to do that, it was a little bit of an article of faith, right? We had this sort of belief that we could harness the power of the capital markets to do things like protect the environment and strengthen communities. Um, And we really had to find ways to prove the case that you could actually do both, right? That you could actually be um, a, a wise investor who does not want to give up returns at all and also be driving positive impact for environment and, and um, social issues. This is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School, and I'm your host, Mike Toffel, a professor here at HBS. Today's episode is the third in this series, recorded in early 2020 at the Harvard Business School Conference on Risks, Opportunities, and Investment in the Era of Climate Change. We'll hear from four experts representing different aspects of financial services about how climate change is affecting the insurance industry and both large and small investors in the equity and debt markets. They'll also take questions from the audience about where the space might go next. Today's speakers highlight some of the approaches long-term investors are using to uncover and price climate risk, which includes physical risks and transition risks. Physical risks include risks from natural disasters exacerbated by climate change. By transition risk, we mean risks that arise from new regulations, such as carbon taxes, that seek to make the price of goods and services better reflect the true cost of the greenhouse gas emissions they generate. First, we'll hear from Wendy Cromwell, Vice Chair and Director of Sustainable Investment at Wellington Management, an independent investment management firm. She'll be followed by Tony Davis, CEO and CIO of the Inherent Group, an ESG-focused investment management firm that invests long and short in the equity and credit markets. He'll talk about how his firm considers physical and transition risks in their investment decisions. We'll then hear from Audrey Choi, Chief Sustainability Officer and Chief Marketing Officer of the global investment bank Morgan Stanley. She'll discuss how Morgan Stanley has developed ways to integrate climate analysis into their investment advisory offerings, both to mitigate climate risk and to engage proactively with companies developing climate solutions. Finally, for a perspective from the insurance industry, we'll hear from Luca Albertini, CEO and founding partner of Leiden Hall Capital Partners. He describes some of the data and modeling work that insurance and reinsurance companies are doing to improve how they price insurance to reflect climate risks. So let's dive in with Wendy Cromwell, who leads a lot of the work on climate risk at her firm, Wellington Management. My colleague, HBS professor George Sheriffim, moderates the panel and started by asking her about how Wellington is examining physical climate risks and how that impacts their investment decisions. I want to start with you discussing about the role of physical climate risk a little bit and the role of capital markets and how you are thinking about um, how physical risk is playing out, creating transition risks, and what are the types of things that you're looking to understand that an investment is well protected or how you are identifying opportunities through that transition? So... When we started thinking about our role and what we could do to advance the climate agenda and climate understanding in capital markets, we looked out into the marketplace and we saw that a lot of people were focused on transition risk, which of course is very important. Carbon footprinting, 
your, the carbon footprint of your portfolio? Is it what you want it to be? Are you aligned with the two-degree scenario? Will we get a carbon tax? Will we get a carbon dividend? Um, what will that look like? How will it impact the securities that you own? It's inherently about, mostly about companies and emissions, what's going to roll out over time with regard to those emissions. Inherently studying transition risk, there's a behavioral element. Will we get a carbon tax? What will it look like? Will consumer um, preferences change? How will they change? Will demand change? Will asset owners shift from high carbon portfolios to low carbon portfolios? All of that has a behavioral element to it. Where we saw people weren't focused as much, although there are people focused on it, is on physical climate risk. And physical climate risk is actually studying heat, drought, wildfire, hurricanes, floods, access to water. Yes, I may have said that a thousand times over the past six months. But heat, drought, wildfires, hurricanes, access to water, what that looks like and how that's going to impact the companies that you invest in. Because companies ultimately create an economy, which ultimately creates a society. And so that's not limited to emissions and focusing on emissions. It's actually looking at your real estate and whether it's in a compromised position or looking at your mortgages or your muni bonds or perhaps even uh, a regional bank that's making loans that are place-based. Um, and so we wanted to embark on really trying to bridge the divide between climate science and finance. And to do that, we actually created a partnership with a climate science organization, Woods Hole Research Center. They happen to be located in Woods Hole, which is very convenient. But as you can see, they're a global organization. They do work around the globe. They're top-ranked think tank, et cetera, um, to focus exactly on this gap, bridging the gap between climate science and finance or investors. Um, and my favorite story that I think is emblematic of that issue is when we sat down with Phil Duffy, who's the head of uh, Woods Hole Research Center, and we said, hey, Phil, we want to understand in basis points the impact of heat, drought, wildfire, hurricanes, floods, access to water on all of these different securities so that we can understand the implications for our companies, for our portfolios, for the beneficiaries, for economies, and for society. He looked at us and he said, what's a basis point? <laughs> and I love to tell that story because here you have this brilliant man, scientist, very analytical, knows everything about RCP scenarios and all of the climate science, um, doesn't know a basis point. And on the finance side, you know, you have everyone who knows all about basis points and nothing about RCP scenarios. So I always like to give examples. I mentioned those six variables that we wanted to cover in the first year. Heat was the first one. So if I take us back to January of last year, we launched on heat, and what we do hand in glove with Woods Hole is they give us a big literature review. There's a lot of peer-reviewed science out there. They say, this is the best. Read this, we have exactly one week. And then we come back together in a week and we, said, we say to them, these are the types of capital markets questions we think we wanna answer with regard to heat. And they say, okay, if you wanna answer those types of questions, we think this metric, in this case the heat index, is the best one to do that. So the heat index is actually the intersection of heat and humidity. Um, and it's much more impactful on human beings and on some forms of infrastructure than heat measured alone. So it is the right index, we think, to look at heat and how it's changing over time. I grew up in Louisiana, and my mother used to always say, it's much hotter here than Arizona. Arizona, it's a dry heat. She was actually right. You know, it's a lot hotter at the same temperature um, dependent upon the, the humidity. So recently, um, this past summer, I was in San Diego, and they were at 88 degrees Fahrenheit. 
31 degrees Celsius, 85% relative humidity. And that equates to a heat index of 110. Okay, and then you can see the consequences on the human body where you have the danger and the extreme danger zones being pretty, pretty consequential. Um, Woods Hole then goes about creating for us granular maps. In the case of heat, it's their 100 kilometers by 100 kilometers to see how that variable is going to change over time, place by place. What we saw was there's a lot of variability in the United States, um, particularly in the southern region. Um, Houston's very, very red. And what that means is that Houston is going to experience two additional months of danger and extreme danger heat days unfolding in the 2020 to 2029 decade on an annual basis. And that, to the untrained scientists, seemed like a lot. Two additional months, Houston's already a hot place. Um, and we said, that's very interesting. I wonder if the capital markets are, have already figured this out. Maybe we're the last ones to know. What does that look like? You know, have they figured out where might this be priced? And this is a little bit of an art, right? You say, where would it be priced? We thought of municipal bonds. They're inherently place-based. They've got long horizons to them. They're relatively efficient. So we looked and we plotted municipal bonds all around the US. And lo and behold, we found that you can find two municipal bonds with almost identical financial characteristics and very different heat outcomes. And that's before you get to hurricane outcomes. And so I ask you, which bond would you buy? Right? So this, is, this was our first indication that we were onto something that really the capital markets had not paid attention to this yet. We're not paying attention to this yet. This is within the investable time horizon for this mini bond. And we've expanded that analysis through asset class to asset class, variable to variable. Um, and that's how we're integrating it. And we're sharing that information with our clients. We're sharing that information as much as possible with the external um, companies that we're investing in because we feel like by becoming exposed to the information and informed, we have a better chance of achieving a more graceful transition. Once you develop the infrastructure, right, the information, the methodology and so forth, what was the next step? How were you able to integrate that into the work that the portfolio managers, yeah. the analysts and so forth are doing? So th that's a great question. And I, I left out a step because there are vendors out there and some of them are, are doing really good work that are doing physical climate risk work. And we evaluated six of them prior to embarking on a partnership. And what we determined was that vendor relationship for us was going to be problematic because they give you a number or a score for the security um, and that wasn't going to be internalized by the investors. And so instead of going with a vendor relationship, we actually went with this partnership to build the knowledge in-house with the investors along the way. So our insurance analyst, our utilities analyst, our muni bond analyst um, is in the room when we're each week when we're going through these working sessions, looking at the science with the scientists. Mm -hmm and they're adding questions to the mix. So it's been by design that they've been involved all along, which has been really uh, powerful, yeah. Uh, Tony, uh, I want to follow up with you. What Wendy described is deep fundamental analysis at the end of the day, right? And at Inherent, you have the privilege to be able to do that because you run concentrated portfolios. But the other interesting thing is that because you take both long and short positions, you're looking both for uh, unpriced risk that could lead to declines, but also unpriced opportunity, right? That could be capitalized in the future. So can you tell us a little bit about how do you go about doing that and give us a few examples of where you see, for example, pricing and non-pricing of those risks and opportunities in the markets and how they play out? Yeah, great. Um, 
So first, just, just to kind of level set, we are active managers. We invest in the equity and credit markets. We invest long and short. And it's a team of folks that come from you know, Anchorage, Goldman, Blackstone, King Street. So we do everything that we did previously at those shops, but now we're really trying to integrate and think about material sustainability issues by sector that we invest in. We borrow a lot from the work that our friends have done at SASB, um, mapping those material issues. But for today's purposes, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about climate. And I think on climate in particular, as we look at a sector or a company, we're assessing both physical and transition risks. For us, the physical risks tend to be sort of place-based or sectors that have significant value in fixed assets, although it's becoming increasingly an issue for supply chains. On transition risk, we're th we quite simply say, what would happen to this company in this sector if you priced carbon at $100 per ton? And I think, you know, as we think about all of these material sort of externalities um, that might eventually be priced, you know, we see a very clear sort of path to carbon being priced. So I think it's especially timely to be considering that in our investment analysis. So it leads us in, in, in the one, on the one hand to be aligned with companies that we think are solutions leaders. So, you know, wind blade manufacturers, biodiesel, um, wind developers, utilities that are really leading on the transition. On the other hand, being short companies that we think are facing, um, are going to be facing a headwind. So take convenience stores where they make all their money on gasoline, which peaked last year in the United States because of efficiency and in internal combustion engines. But right behind that, of course, we have EVs. The other place they make money is on cigarette sales, which are declining at 6% a year. So we look within sectors, we'll look for companies that we think are at sort of a disadvantaged place in the cost curve as pricing starts to, of, of these externalities starts to occur. Uh, and I think it was said earlier, you know, we don't think, for example, that aluminum is going away anytime soon. We think as carbon is priced, you will see some price elasticity and some, and some demand response. But looking for companies like, like those that use hydropower uh, to produce aluminum can be a good way for us to be just, you know, just think about how those cost curves will shift as carbon gets priced. And I just make one last point, which is um, in the credit markets, I mean, what you're really looking for in credit, in credit you know, remember, you've got sort of limited upside and you have all the downside. Um, and conversely, if you're thinking about convexity being short credit, you're really looking for companies or sectors where you can see a real change in the unit economics of the business. And the pricing of carbon in a meaningful way will meaningfully shift unit economics in certain industries that we look at, will meaningfully shift cost curve positioning within those industries. And so we find in the credit markets often, um, we think, you know, short opportunities where these risks have not been uh, appropriately priced. And you can, if I can quickly follow up in what you're saying, Tony, if you would identify the one biggest challenge that you have in this process of doing this work, what would that be? Well, data, getting access to data. And then I think on the engagement front, because we do engage as an activist with the companies uh, that we own, um, trying to get them to sort of think through the scenario modeling and sort of prioritize it in how they conduct their own businesses is a challenge, but I'd say we're, we're really encouraged by the response that we're getting from management teams and boards. Well, thank you. Um, Audrey, I want to move to you. Uh, obviously, in Morgan Stanley, you have a big footprint, right, uh, on the marketplace. I want to talk a little bit about new products, 
right, and new product innovation. And you have done some pioneering work in terms of like the institute, setting up the institute, and then scaling that uh, across the bank. So talk to us about what is new, right? What is new and interesting in this space in terms of like integrating climate analysis in product design, portfolio construction, any of those ideas? Um, yeah, sure. Thanks, George. Um, I think it's been a really interesting journey because, as you said, you know, at Morgan Stanley, we started this um, 11 years ago that we founded our global sustainable finance group. And actually, 11 years ago for a Wall Street bank to do that, it was a little bit of an article of faith, right? We had this sort of belief that we could harness the power of the capital markets to do things like protect the environment and strengthen communities. Um, and we really had to find ways to prove the case that you could actually do both, right? That you could actually be um, a, a wise investor who who does not want to give up returns at all and also be driving positive impact for environment and, and um, social issues. And so I think, you know, in, in the early years, there were, frankly, there was a lot of us just actually looking at the data and trying to analyze it and saying, can you do it? Is there a you know, significant enough overlap area in the Venn diagram where you can aim for appropriate risk-adjusted market rate of return and environmental impact? Um, and I think in terms of investor psyche at the time, of, you know, clients who are coming to us either in our, you know, in our, um, in our wealth management business, individuals, families, high net worth individuals, but also on the, in, in the institutional side, we saw the families come first. Right? And the families were really coming, um, again, in some ways because of an article of faith, that they believed in, in the environment, that they had their charitable things focused on the environment, and, they want, you know, and their kids, you know, their, their 20 and 30-something-year-olds were starting to say to the matriarch and patriarch, like, Daddy, when I get the money, I'm not keeping it invested the way you have it. And so we had, uh, in the early days, it was a bit more of like charisma and conviction and passion for things that would be good for the environment. I think what we've seen over the past couple of years is this real shift where, you know, as we've all said, increasingly there's been so much more recognition from chief risk officers, from chief investment officers, that this is a massive mega trend that is a fundamental material risk to earnings, that is a massive um, risk to portfolio. Um, and so, so we've been doing a couple of different things, and we've seen a couple of different things happen with products. One is, again, internally, our, our risk department has been very engaged in saying, look, do we really need to do all the work that everyone's been talking about this morning of how do you fundamentally price risk into your portfolios? You know, it could be that every bank's real estate portfolio is fundamentally mispriced if you're not actually looking at climate risk, right? There may be whole swaths of real estate that have flood insurance, but no fire insurance or vice versa, depending on where they are. Um, and so we, we're internally doing that. But on the product development side, what we've seen is a real shift um, to now, I think, I would say 10 years ago when we started, the first biggest area of product interest was letting me sleep at night. Right? So investors would say, I don't want X, Y, Z sectors in my portfolios. We then sort of, and that's, you know, longstanding sort of avoid sin stocks. We then have seen more and more of a shift towards ESG integration saying, help me use environmental and social governance factors to get good quality portfolios, get best in class in a particular industry. But I think the real interesting thing that we're seeing now and is much more of a focus of product innovation is really people saying, I don't just want to avoid climate negatives. I want to actually do both. So I want, to, I, I want to get a portfolio that proactively is de-risking me over the short and the long term, um, or more interesting, the long and the short term, because now people are more and more seeing the short term effects. And at the same time, I want to proactively engage. And so whether it's, you know, we've worked with a number of um, religious institutions who are following, you know, the Pope saying, do something proactive about climate change and poverty, not just avoiding this in stocks, um, but also the most serious, significant institutional investors who are saying, I actually want to skew. 
So I think that the kinds of product innovations that we're seeing, A, it's going to be more significant active climate engagement, more explicit climate risk, um, you know, avoidance and de-risking, and also, you know, really much more sort of, um, and also looking, frankly, at long short. I think that's been an area that for much of the last decade, a lot of the sort of socially minded investors were like, I shouldn't short. I should just go long all the good stuff. And now we're seeing much more focus you know, from hedge funds, from institutional investors saying, you know, why wouldn't you long short where you see opportunity and risk? Okay, let me tell you a secret. You don't need to be in a Harvard classroom to hear the best and brightest minds in business. I'm Chris Lenane, host of Harvard Business School Online's new podcast, The Parlor Room. On each episode, I sit down with esteemed Harvard Business School professors to demystify vital business concepts in a way that's entertaining and insightful. We break down academic theory without sacrificing depth. Want to learn how to become a master negotiator? We have the perfect episode for you. Or perhaps the best way to build your personal brand. Yep, we've got that covered too. On each episode of The Parlor Room, you'll gain useful takeaways to navigate the business world from wherever you are. Hear business concepts come to life. Listen to The Parlor Room on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, uh, Audrey mentioned a lot about proactive, right? Luca, I want to ask you about that. You have to be proactive, by definition, right? In your business, you are in the reinsurance business and you assume weather risk. By the way, good luck. Uh, hurricanes, typhoons, floods, hailstorms. Sounds like a fun job, by the way. Um, open the black box a little bit for us. H- how do you do that, especially in an environment where we see that the frequency of those events might be changing, but it's not only about the frequency, but it's also about the magnitude of some of those events. So give us a sense of the process that you're using to recalibrate some of those models as you face with an update of environmental data. Exactly, no, it's, uh, it's very topical these days, you know, in terms of uh, uh, taking weather risk. Uh, and uh, just uh, as an introduction, I started as a asset-backed securities person. Uh, so doing residential mortgages, credit card securitizations. When I moved to reinsurance, I was shocked by how little insurance risk is actually priced into everyday's financial instruments. Uh, you know, finding out that, you know, Quake is not covered by a vast majority of the assets that are in an RMBS. The gas triple A's in place a very few basis points, <laughs> you know, in the, in the capital markets. Uh, or uh, a credit card securitization with a triple B tranche going at, I don't know, 40, 50 basis points, and uh, pandemic cover to the level of the Spanish flu, nothing like what we're seeing today, placing at 3 to 4%. So the first thing is the pricing that we, at least we apply in our insurance is actually explicit. So it's what I felt is when I move into insurance the first time actually I'm getting paid for things that often in the traditional financial markets you don't get paid at all or you completely neglect. And one of the key things you see in the in the market is when you have an insurance event, you have some statistics about what is the economic cost of the event and the insurance industry cost of the event. Even in the United States the gap is massive, in Europe is Mega massive in Asia, there is not even a gap because it's all held by the by the uh, economic environment and not reinsured. So 
what this welter data and the higher frequency that you're seeing lately is actually doing is focusing the minds of very intelligent people like yourselves, but also the risk manager of the company and say, oh, I'm retaining this risk net, right? Uh, what we do is we collect tons and tons of data every year. And what we do is insurance and reinsurance reprices on a 12-month basis. You know, there are a few cases like cap bonds where it's three, three years, but still you have an annual reset of the risk. So what we do is we always try to, to get as much information as possible about what we are actually seeing uh, in the prior 12 months. We use commercial model on one side, and these models update every uh, year or two. And what they're trying to do is to front run the development on the event. So the, the two main commercial models using insurance are uh, produced by AIR and RMS, the two commercial companies. And they have uh, a warm sea surface temperature module, as well as a long-term module. And this, again, to allow underwriters to understand what is the long-term risk if you invest on a 100-year horizon, as we we heard before, and what is the short-term risk given what you have experienced in the last few years. Now, quite interestingly, when you actually look at the actual loss from the hurricane experience, all those models have uh, shown a more conservative view of the actual loss than what you have seen in practice. Uh, but also, uh, mind you, uh, there were two very interesting events here. 12 years without a Florida landfall up to 2017, that's a one in 200 year event, right? That was crazy, right? So when people then see uh, four hurricanes making landfall in the following two years, they say, oh my God, it's climate change. No, 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 these things don't happen in a normal distribution. They come in a different fashion. And actually what was more interesting about Hurricane Irma that hit Florida was not uh, the severity on the construction codes, but was more the social inflation due to uh, the abuse of some local legislation that then the Florida Senate had to mitigate by enacting new legislation last year, something called assignment of benefits. So the, the amplification of the loss of Hurricane Irma in 17, 35% of that was litigation risk. There was a model by anyone because this legislation has never been tested in the 12 year prior to that. So what we're trying to do is to model the difference in risk because of the temperature. And by the way, when you talk about hurricanes, it's not the absolute temperature, but the difference between tropics and, and the Atlantic. So it's a relative difference. Um, then you actually need to see uh, in concrete um, cases, what is the actual behavior of the uh, local population. So we're talking about uh, abuses on claims. We're talking about construction codes. And, and, uh, and that's what insurance does uh, every time something happens, if you can't renew your policy or your policy is too expensive, that's the insurance industry telling you, sorry, you shouldn't be there, right? And that's when the risk moves from the private sector to the state, and then the state becoming aware that, okay, this area is how to reinsure, then they create state pools, uh, that's uh, happening in the UK as well as in the US, and then the state pools say, okay, I have a concentration of risk in there, maybe I should build a flood defense, maybe I should have construction costs that change. And the interaction of temperature construction codes, man-made operations, and all that is actually what comes into what is the price. I must say, up to now, uh, the NATCATR insurance industry maintained the profit, so we think we are ahead of the game. But clearly, the one thing that uh, climate change is doing is creating more frequent extreme events. So the question is, are we pricing correctly? And it's a question to which we don't have an answer. You know, are we pricing the extreme wildfire, the one in 200 years wildfire that happened like 
every three years. Right? That, that bit is uh, where the greatest focus and difficulty lies at the moment. Thank you, thank you very much, Luca. I would like to open uh, to the floor for questions uh, for any of the participants. Again, please uh, identify yourself and ask the question, if possible, in a short and sweet way. Luca, I'm not sure you don't know exactly how to price some of these risks. Uh, the interesting arbitrage between Houston and Detroit that exists today indicates that the market has not yet signaled what are some of the signals that we can look to, uh, leading indicators, um, such as, say, the, the cost of, I, I know the, the Woods Hole research was used with the McKinsey study, et cetera. So Florida, if flood insurance price starts to escalate, but when the flood insurance actually goes away, then you can't get a mortgage, then the price of properties goes down, what from each of you are some of the leading indicators uh, that you'd look at, and including the price? Um, well, you ask a great question because I didn't walk through the whole logic chain behind the municipal bond example that I gave. So you may be left wondering, okay, you've got these two securities, they've got two different climate risks, but will it be priced within the time horizon that you're looking at? Um, and I think for that, you have to think about this logic chain of why place matters to municipal bonds. And there's a number of different issues. We've actually seen more work at reinsurers than insurers on climate science. Um, one of the first things that we did after we did this municipal bond analysis was we went and we spent a full day with a claims university at a traditional insurance company and marveled at the fact that they actually weren't doing a lot with climate science because they didn't have to, because they reset prices on a year-to-year -year basis. Um, so they're not really assuming that risk. You're assuming that risk because if something happens to your property in California and you're impacted by a wildfire, they just raise your insurance costs the next year. We naively thought that all the insurance companies had it figured out, but they don't. But if you walk through that analysis, if the price um, of your insurance or goes up by a significant amount, or if you are no longer able to be insured, eventually that results in perhaps reverse migration from some of these places that are more difficult to live in. Um, or if you're a municipal bond, um, if one of these events impacts your infrastructure pretty significantly, it impacts your viability as an entity to have capital to improve that infrastructure. Um, and you can imagine this chain of events. So no insurance, people move out, need to raise taxes to improve uh, the infrastructure, there's fewer people to raise tax base on, that creates kind of this vicious cycle of reverse migration out of some of the more popular places um, we've seen migration to, even within the United States. So that's sort of a small place-based example. A few quick things, we look at insurance costs, we look at the amount of down payment required by the banks, we look at are mainstream, are the banks pulling back from certain sectors? So we saw in the credit space last year, some of the underperformers in energy where you had long dated reserves, um, certainly in thermal coal, oil sands, private prisons, you know, areas where you're just seeing financing pull away. Um, we look at carbon prices, we own CCAs in California, we watch EUAs carefully. Um, and, and then just look at the equity markets. I mean, you really, even in the last six months, you started to see real outperformance of companies that um, are leading on climate solutions, I would say. It hasn't been as reflected as much in some of the shifting cost curves that I talked about, but we are seeing outperformance of renewables, um, et cetera, certainly relative to traditional fossil fuels. 
I have a question probably more for Wendy and Audrey because you've both given um, very specific examples of uh, fundamental research insights that you've been able to get uh, based on evaluating either climate data or specific ESG data and how that gets embedded into valuation models. But we just heard in the prior presentation about this uh, sort of focus on ETFs and passive investing and how that's the wave of the future. And I'm just trying to... Uh, you know, square this uh, phenomenon because it does take time, energy, and effort to come to those stock-specific insights, but if clients aren't willing to pay for them, how will we actually advance the ball and, or, or will there simply be, you know, lost alpha that's never uncovered? It's a great question. I'm, I also think that this is very difficult to do quantitatively because quant investors are inherently looking for empirical evidence that something has unfolded in the past and you're thinking about climate, the risks are increasing in the future. You're not going to find the answers over the past 20 years of analysis. Now, George has done great academic work to prove that if you're focusing on material factors, that there's some alpha there, um, and that is by using historical data. And so I often use that, I call it the seminal study, for when people are asking for the academic paper that supports ESG. Um, but I do think it's really hard to do quantitatively, and I think you're raising a good issue, like if the active managers are doing deep dive research and we really feel like we're finding insights, but most clients are doing passive investing, then what are we actually doing and how are we advancing this agenda within economy, societies, um, investments, capital markets? Once we started to see the severity of the information that was unfolding over the, a shorter time period than we imagined, um, we felt compelled to do more than just invest on behalf of our client beneficiaries in, in terms of changing how we're making decisions. Clearly, we want to do that. That's our fiduciary role. Um, but that's when we started to develop more engagement strategies. We created an engagement document. We started looking at all the CDP disclosures for the companies that we own, combining that with the map, seeing if they're actually acknowledging that they have this exposure. Often, they're not. If they are um, asking them what their plan is for deepening and um, diving into that and actually accommodating that physical climate risk. Um, and by doing that, that's where we think that we're having more of an impact sort of at a, at a greater level rather than just in our portfolios. Um, because if you help those companies to prepare, if you make them aware, if they don't know, you make them aware and you help them to prepare, then ultimately you're building resiliency into the system via engagement, which is different than the transition risk engagement that might be talking more, which we also do, talking more about their emissions and um, and their commitment to an energy transition. I would just say, I mean, just to add to that, I mean, I, I think you're totally right. I mean, it is it is very hard right now. And especially as you as you try to get to some of the products that are more available to, you know, to, to all investors, not just sort of the ultra high net worth or institutions that can get these highly tailored, highly specific customized products. Um, I, I guess I would say just more on a, on a kind of a, a macro basis to just think about where we are as the field is developed. Developing, right. I think that we are still, you know, in this incredible sort of primordial soup stage of the industry trying to figure out how to tailor these products. And what I think has been actually incredibly both important and a, a real thing for us to watch out about is we've seen, um, you know, this enormous groundswell of, of investor interest, um, you know, including from the millennials, um, but also from large institutions. Um, and look, I think we all have to be, you know, I think everyone here who's involved in the industry, I think this is a time where we all need to proceed with incredible rigor and caution. Um, and we were really excited to be able to work with Pepsi on their most uh, recent green bond, billion-dollar green bond, largely dedicated to plastic um, reduction in the beverage chain. That, um, that issuance was so oversubscribed 
that they actually that Pepsi really saw a significant financial upside from it, where you had investors who could have chosen all from a financial perspective, I mean similar to what you had, from a financial perspective, almost identical paper was available in the secondary market from Pepsi. And investors actually paid up to get the green paper. Yes, this gets back to an issue relating to the science of climate change in which there are tipping points. And I'm amazed in the age of information that we have that the flow of information between science and economics is so slow or that the gap is so great. And my question is, uh, do you on the panel think there will be tipping points in the world of finance that will trigger rapid change, such as, you know, when a piece of a glacier falls off and markets fall. And what will be the signals? You know, Morgan Stanley just said, if we don't change course, humanity's wiped out. So now it's the bankers who are starting to say this. But are there going to be tipping points in the world of finance or insurance that will cause disruptions? I mean, this, you know, Mark Carney's referred to this maybe as the tragedy of the horizons. Um, and I think the way that we accelerate what the future damage is going to be and loss of economic output is a price today. So I think when you do see a real price and, you know, there was some discussion earlier about what does that have to be? I, I personally think if the U.S. and Europe were to move to pricing carbon and put it on a border adjustment tax, that would be a tipping point. We may be in the midst of a, of a, Modest tipping point, at least right now, because one of the things that I've observed is in the last 12 months, um, this will resonate with this audience. It does not resonate with a millennial. But remember when you when you had a stereo, when you had a stereo and there was a knob and the volume dial, okay, could go from a two to a ten. That's what goes to eleven. Pardon. So that's what I've observed is the volume has gone from a two to a ten in 12 months. Um, around sustainable investment generally, and, but I think it's being driven by the intense um, awareness of climate change because climate change is starting to be recognized, the physical implications of it. Um, so I think we may be in the midst of a tipping point now. Um, one of the things I, I wanted to mention about physical climate risk, um, because I, I want to emphasize, I think it's really important to work on transition risk and mitigation and aligning your portfolio with a two-degree scenario and all of that. And I think it's important to understand your carbon footprint. But one of the reasons that we also need to work on physical climate risk is because no matter what we do, if we stop emitting everything today or if we continue on the same path, those two scenarios don't diverge in terms of their implications until 2035. So what we have for us in store for the next 15 years is already predetermined, no matter what we do. So we need to understand that. In addition to working on the 2035 and beyond periods and how we make those better, um, and that's why we're you know, all in trying to encourage everyone to focus on those physical climate risk issues. The, the only other thing I would add is, again, I, I think that you know whether or not there is one point where there's a huge glacial calving, um, I think that we may be more in a situation where we've we've got a number of snowballs that have started gathering, sort of you know steam down the mountain. Um, and I think one of the really significant ones has been, as Tony referred to, some of the regulatory issue. The fact that you've got you know the NGFS with more than 50 central banks and multilaterals talking about climate change as a financial risk. That you know that Carney really started with all of the work there from the Financial Stability Board. You know we're definitely seeing more and more. Risk 
risk officers, whether it's at insurance companies or banks or, you know, at asset owners saying this is a fundamental risk. It has to be in it. We're seeing more regulators saying it has to be there because, you know, and again, while certainly the, uh, the role of leadership and U.S. leadership is important, the fact that we all live in a global market, if, if, the, if the PRA in England says we have to do it, it doesn't really matter that we're U.S. domiciled, right? So I'm actually um, encouraged that between regulatory moves um, and frankly also the voice of consumers saying that they're going to really, you know, vote with their feet and their dollars and their decisions could actually be sort of the, the snowballs we need to get rolling downhill for an avalanche of good. Very briefly, from my perspective, the, uh, the landslide for me is business interruption, which is one part of what we ensure. And uh, business interruption sometimes shows the risk where no one understood it was in the first place. Uh, give an example, the Thai floods in 2011 blocked the Japanese electronic industry, right? A number of reinsurers say, hold on a sec, I got, I got a Japanese claim out of a Thai flood, right? And things were not coming to London, you know, cameras were not coming around Christmas. And uh, what is this showing is, first, sometimes because we are trying to delegate or, or to buy from the cheapest place, you know, we do not necessarily have the supply chain in the best places in the world and or the most well defended. And the second one is, is the, is the claim properly insured or not? And again, so my point for me in terms of tipping points is when shareholders see that there was an uninsured loss to the supply chain uh, or, or business interruption, they should ask questions. And why asking the questions? Why were you there? Why were you not insured? And if you answer these two questions well, you start going in the right places and buy insurance. Uh, thank you very much all on this uh, super interesting information, both on adaptation and video. In hearing the diverse perspectives on this panel, two important points stood out to me. First, we're starting to see some interesting innovations from the financial sector regarding climate change. Luca Albertini talked about the risk climate change is posing to coastal properties. This is an area ripe for innovation. Swiss Re, for example, teamed up with the Nature Conservancy and regional governments in Mexico to develop an insurance product to protect coral reefs along the Yucatan Peninsula, which are vital to the tourism industry there. The insurance product covers the cost of repairing coral reefs after a storm. As coral reefs are known to protect coastlines and prevent beach erosion, protecting this natural resource protects the coastline that drives the local economy. Second, the growing amount of climate data being collected will increasingly highlight current misprice risk in both the debt and equity markets, which will begin to send a stronger signal to companies to assess and manage their climate change risks. As partnerships like the one between Wellington and Woods Hole produce more data on the physical risks of climate change and incorporate them in investment models, managers seeking funding will be motivated to demonstrate their understanding of these risks and how they are managing them. These growing connections between climate data, investors, and managers provides an important and exciting opportunity for the investment community to create value by changing how they manage portfolios and also how they influence the companies they invest in. That's it for this episode of Climate Rising. Next time... You have to think about worst case scenarios. There's always going to be a distribution of potential outcomes in the future. The purpose of risk management is to think about how bad could it be. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Mike Toffel. This is Climate Rising, a podcast produced by the Business and Environment Initiative at Harvard Business School. 
You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please leave us a review. We appreciate the feedback. You can also find show notes and links to resources discussed on this episode on the Climate Rising website, climaterising.hbs.edu.